Welcome to Reconciling Grace, a program where church leaders discuss various topics from the Bible. During the discussions, there may or may not always be agreement from every panel member on every point, but there is full agreement on the fact that the way to God the Father is through the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ. This is Pete Vecchi, one of the associate pastors from West Carrollton Church in the Nazarene, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Reconciling Grace. We discuss topics and passages from the Bible here in a roundtable forum. With us today is Mick Wells. Mick is one of the co-hosts of the Cross Connection radio program. He has been part of Wells of Salvation Ministries since 1980, the year Steve Wilson, our other panelist today, was born. I like to say that. Steve kind of laughs whenever I say that, but <laughs> it's kind of an interesting um, connection there, especially when you think about the fact that 1980 was the year that I gave my entire life to the Lord. So 1980 is kind of an important year to all three of us here. Mm-hmm. So Steve has uh, asked to lead a discussion today on Simeon, and Simeon in the Bible uh, there are a few Simeons in the Bible, but there's one specific Simeon and his greatest desire. So, Steve, tell us a little bit about what you're wanting to share with us today. Well, we are going to talk about Simeon, but first I want to start by asking, what is your greatest desire? And uh, I'll pick on Pete first. My greatest desire. Well, um, I'll be spiritual and say my greatest desire is to love and to serve God. I want to I want to be close to him. I want to know him more and more and I want to one day be with him in heaven forever. Now I don't want that day to come too soon. I I kind of like to stick around here for my family and such for a while, but I know that should that day be today, I know where I'm going and I'm at peace with that. Okay. Mick, what's your greatest desire? Well, if I step back and think about it a bit, I would have to say that um, I desire more than anything to hear from Jesus the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I think all of the rest of my life, my actions, my intents uh, would fall under that umbrella because I think it's all connected. Okay. I think, uh, just to volunteer myself here, I think my greatest desire is kind of a confirmation in my knowledge that I am living the authentic Christian lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Kind of mm-hmm. goes along with what Mick just said about hearing that message at the time you enter heaven. Well, I kind of want to know before that. Right, right. And that's why I read Christian history, and I, I kind of want to see how Christians have lived uh, through the years so that I can kind of check myself and, and know that, yeah, I'm in line with the historic faith and not just... Uh, the faith of America or, you know, our mainstream churches. Right. And can you, can I tell you what my second greatest desire used to be, but it was finally fulfilled was in 2016 when the Cubs won the world series. (laughs) (laughs) Is that part of heaven too? Um, I don't know. I think for a lot of Cub fans, uh, I used to say this, and this is always just a joke, but I'll say it here that when the Cubs were one strike away from winning the world series, Jesus would come back. (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to talk about a man named Simeon, and uh, also going to talk about a woman named Anna in our Bible passage today. It's found in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40, and uh, Mick, I'm going to ask you to read 
verses 22 through 24. Okay. This is when Jesus uh, was presented in the temple. And the word tells us, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, quote, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so part of that says every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. My question is, why was every firstborn male to be consecrated that way? Well, I think that um, looking at the scripture, God didn't just arbitrarily pull that out of the air and levy it. There is a reason behind it. Uh, my understanding is it was to become uh, a memorial act in recognition of uh, what, how Christ had spared the firstborn sons of believers during the 10th plague of, of Egypt. And um, so it was basically to perpetuate a memory of, of such deliverance. And uh, interesting in the scriptures, it, it, in the Old Testament, it goes on to talk about how uh, firstborn animals were included in the responsibility to uh, honor the Lord mm -hmm. in, in this manner. Uh, they even provided redemption for unclean animals that couldn't be sacrificed. But I, I think it was from the Lord a direction to remind uh, the Israelite nation of how they had been spared, at least in terms of their firstborn sons, during that plague in Egypt. And the other thing that I would go with, and Mick, I think that was great what you said. Um, I think you, you probably hit the nail much more on the head than I would, but I just want to take kind of a side track on that and just say that the culture of that day placed more emphasis on the firstborn. So, for instance, when there was an inheritance, the firstborn would receive double mm. than, the, than the secondborn. And so just like the way that, that kings, even today in, in areas where there are kingdoms, but if you look all the way like down to the, the kingdoms of Israel and, and Judah, the firstborn son would be the person who would inherit the kingdom. And so that firstborn in that culture was a very important thing as well. True. So the scripture does come from the reference in Exodus where the angel of death goes through Egypt and uh, strikes down the firstborn of all the Egyptians, uh, spares the firstborn of the Israelites. And then I can't help but think that God was looking forward to this time when he would send his firstborn. Mm -hmm. Because Jesus isn't only the firstborn of Mary. He's the firstborn of God. And a couple of scriptures here. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Again, in Romans 8.29, he says that uh, Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters because when we believe in Jesus, God adopts us into his family and we become Christ's brothers and sisters. But he's the firstborn of that family. And then again in Colossians 1.18, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. So I can't help but think that 
God, looking forward to this birth of Christ, put a special emphasis on the firstborn to show that now this son, this uh, Jesus who's being consecrated in the temple, has that special relationship is being especially consecrated to God. Hmm. Pete, can you read verse 25 for us? Sure. This is a continuation of what we had just read in Luke chapter 2. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Okay. So it says, Simeon was righteous and devout. What does it mean to be righteous? What do you guys think of when you hear that word? The word righteous is kind of a derivative of the word right. Right, R-I-G-H-T, which means to be right. God is right all the time. You know, we kind of think of righteous sometimes as some kind of uh, pietistic type of deal, but it means to be right, to be right with God. That's how I see it. I read it as, uh, or understand it to be uh, endeavoring or with purpose, trying to live your life consistent with what is right, consistent with God's uh, precepts. And as you know, the, the scripture tells us that we really can't attain any righteousness apart from that which Jesus confers on us. And so it describes our own righteousness as, quote, as filthy rags. So when I read the word righteous concerning uh, Simeon, I, th- I look at it more in terms of intent. It was his t- intent through the way he lived his life to do what was right in the eyes of God. Mm-hmm. And I've always heard that righteous means to be in a right relationship with God, uh, meaning you are trying to live that way. And uh, for us as Christians, it means that we do have that um, righteousness uh, imputed to us from Christ. Mm-hmm. So the next thing it says is he was devout. How, how is that different from righteous? And, and what do you guys think of when you think of someone being devout? I've always thought of the two words as synonymous. Um, it's hard for me to really come up with a different meaning for devout, except means maybe like deeply believing this, um, to be somebody who is doing everything they can to live that way, maybe doing everything they can to live that way of being righteous in this case. I see it as similar to that, uh, Pete, that uh, it really implies to me somebody's steadiness or being unwavering in their uh, loyalty and pursuit of of something. So uh, righteous being do what's pleasing to God Devout mean to do it consistently, uh, loyally, steadily, and without wavering. Okay. The picture that I get of devout is someone who is committed, yes, but but not only committed, um, but this is their way of life. You know, above all else, this is what they're about. Uh, If they were to go home in the evening, they wouldn't read a novel. They read scripture. You know, they, they wouldn't watch uh, something on Netflix. They would watch something on Pure Flix, the, uh, the Christian mm. uh, movies. You know, they, they would be just totally consumed, totally focused on this. So I don't want to get too far off on a rabbit trail. Would you say then that 
nobody is devout unless they do those kind of things. In other words, people who might watch secular television or who might, for me, follow the Cubs or whatever, would you say that's being non-devout? Or how would you say Uh, that? I would say I personally wouldn't describe them as being devout like Simeon is. And like we're reading a few verses uh, about this lady named Anna. So she was in the temple all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what she was about. Um, We talk about uh, a nun. A nun is devout. Mm -hmm. Now, a regular person, a regular Christian can be righteous. But I wouldn't describe them as being devout unless they're totally focused on this. To me, uh, to be devout means that and and devout to Jesus uh, means that you want to serve him so steadily that uh, and truly that being devout becomes how you're oriented. You don't have to stop and think about it. You want to respond just because of that's the way uh, you're made to respond to God in a way that's pleasing to him and let it guide your actions and your words. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to live in the temple or live at the church or whatever, but it's basically just part of who you are as a Christian. Well, for your everyday Christian, you know, who doesn't, you know, work in a church, live in a uh, temple or whatever. Okay, well, that's great. And I'd like to, we're going to keep on going here. I'd like to stop without a break here, but we do need to take a break for our sponsors. So we will be right back after this short message. And we're back with Reconciling Grace. We've just been talking about the differences between being righteous and devout. And Steve, you had another word you were going to start using here. And what would that word be? Well, it says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I kind of wanted to talk about that. What was Israel needing to be consoled of? Well, they'd been under the rule of not the godly kingdom, but they'd been under the rule of different nations for centuries. At this time, they were under Roman rule, and they felt like Rome was their oppressor. They didn't want to be under Roman rule. They were looking forward to a messianic kingdom where Messiah would reign over Israel and uh, basically be their leader. Well, if the Israelites had looked back upon what God has brought them through. They've been through so many things that they were corporately, as a nation, looking for relief. They had suffered, as uh, Pete alluded to, several conquests. They had been oppressed. They had been made slaves in uh, Egypt. And they'd been overrun by uh, several foreign powers. So I think Simeon is basically saying, on behalf of the nation I'm a part of, and that I live in, I'm looking forward to consolation for us all as Israelites. So then, what kind of consolation does Jesus bring to that situation? Well, Jesus, uh, of course, is the Messiah that uh, if they would recognize him, or they're looking for him, somebody who would be deliverer. And I think it's been commonly uh, discussed that they thought he would be a conquering king, as their redeemer, uh, God made his truth known in other ways so that they didn't immediately find what they were looking for in that sense. But Jesus 
uh, fulfilled what they needed. They needed a savior, and that's what he came to be for them. Mm-hmm. I would also think of just their predicament and sin. You know, they needed to be uh, consoled from the human condition, from this uh, this uh, sinful nature that we all share. Oh. And Jesus is the one. Maybe they weren't looking for that. Maybe they weren't aware uh, that that could be taken away from them. But the consolation that Jesus brings, is, as you said, Mick, is different from what they were looking for, but it's what they needed, and it's what we all need. Yes, mm-hmm. amen. Uh, so, Mick, could you read verse 26? Uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 26, says, It had been revealed to him, that meaning Simeon, revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Has God ever revealed anything so sure to you? I have a long answer to that. No. Okay. <laughs> well, I I know I have known people that believe that the Holy Spirit has promised them something, and I may have mentioned this in earlier broadcast. My father died at age eighty-two, but in the years leading up to his uh, eighty-two passing at age 82, he would say over and over again, I think the Lord has promised me that I will be alive when he returns in the rapture of the church to gather his own. Mm -hmm. That's the closest thing I can compare this to, and I really can't relate to it. And as I've said several times, I flunked discernment 101. But how my heart wishes that I could receive what the type of message and assurance that Simeon received and be absolutely sure that it was the Holy Spirit talking to me, but I can't bear witness to it firsthand. And that's the point I was making firsthand. I can't. I've never been so sure of anything. Mick, I think that was a great um, example, what you're talking about with your dad, because there have been times when I thought I was sure, but circumstances later revealed I must not have heard it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I would say that I've had messages from the Spirit, pretty clear messages, but nothing as concrete as this. Um, but we're, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about Anna. Let me go ahead and read this next part. Uh, verses 27 through 32, it says, Moved by the Spirit, he, Simeon, went into the temple courts, When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So what I'm getting from this is that Simeon's greatest desire was to see God's salvation, to see Jesus. And now that he's seen Jesus, he says that he can die in peace. My question for us is, what would let you die in peace? Knowing Jesus. And I think that Simeon must have had some type of a divine revelation to let him know that this baby compared to all the other babies, maybe even that very same day, but all the other babies who have come through the temple, that this baby is the one, something, 
the Holy Spirit, obviously, but somehow must have communicated to Simeon that this child was the one. Maybe kind of like the way that uh, the Holy Spirit communicated to John the Baptist to say that this Jesus is the one, the one that you've been preaching about. Well, the question is, what would let you die in peace? Now, I'll just speak from a personal standpoint. I would love to know that I've done what the Lord wanted me to do in life. I would love to know that I had successfully run the race, as Paul talks about, that the Lord has uh, charted out for me. But I think more than anything along those lines, I would die in peace if I knew that my family had put their faith and trust in Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm happy that it, when anybody does that, but those near and dear to me, uh, my wife, my sons, my daughter, and those that they touch, uh, would give their, uh, their lives to Jesus Christ. So their salvation, I think, assurance of my family's salvation would, at least from a human standpoint, allow me to uh, die in peace. I think for me, it would be finishing well. Uh, yes, knowing Jesus, but also knowing that I haven't uh, tarnished his name too badly. I haven't screwed up my marriage. I haven't, uh, you know, led anyone astray too far. Um, the fact that, you know, my, my witness is still good at the end mm -hmm. would be uh, let me die in peace. And I like the way you said that just because... I know what you mean by those things when you say, for instance, not uh, let you lead anybody astray too far because we are imperfect. And mm -hmm. I'm understanding that is the way that you right. mean that. Not that not that you're trying to let somebody be led astray, but by doing the best that you know how, just like I would be doing the best I know how or Mick doing the best he knows how, that by these things that we are trying to show Jesus in our lives to other people, even though we might not get it exactly right, Hopefully right. they get the main idea. Yeah. Everything I say is not going to be 100% correct. Just like everything I say won't be either. Now, Mick, that's another thing. I don't know. <laughs> Far from it. So uh, one more thing on Simeon here. And then I'm going to uh, skip down to Anna. He says, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. What does that say to you? Does that say anything about Simeon? his relationship to God. Well, it tells me that he felt like he was ready to die. It also implies that uh, he trusted God enough to uh, recognize that God would give him enough life on this earth to see this happen, to see the promise fulfilled. And you know where I think about this, too? I'm, I'm wondering if this is not where his humanness comes into the picture. Because he might be thinking in his own head, I'm, I'm getting older. I thought I heard God tell me this. I thought God has told me this. Yet all these years are going by, I don't have much time left. And wow, I really did hear it. Like Sarai. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really did hear this. What do you know? Lord, now I'm at peace that... Yes, these things that I thought you told me, you really did tell me. Mm. I think of Simeon's humility. You may now dismiss your servant. You've, um, 
He, he's acknowledging God's faithfulness. God, you've, you've said, uh, you've done what you've said, and now I'm your servant. I'm ready to go. If you want to dismiss me, mm-hmm. if my job here is done, I'm ready. You know, again, I'll bring in John the Baptist. Isn't that similar to what happened with him when mm-hmm. when he talked about the fact that, um, you know, he he knew that he would die. He said, I know that Jesus must increase. I must decrease. And even at that, the Bible tells us that when he was in prison, he still sent people to ask Jesus, are you the one we're supposed to wait for? Mm-hmm. So let me go ahead. I'm going to read the rest of this passage and then um, skip down and talk about Anna a little bit. It says, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And I take that to mean that Jesus is going to be the deciding point here. People are going to have to decide whether they're going to believe in him or not. And Mary herself is going to have to uh, make that decision. And also the the pain of seeing her son die. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then it goes on. There's also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then was a widow until she was 84. So probably she had married young Mm. and married for seven years. And then for the vast majority of her life, uh, she had been a widow and had uh, stayed in the temple. So she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And my question is, what can Anna's way of life teach us? I think that kind of goes back to what you were talking about, um, being devout. Right. We uh, not are all called to live in the temple, but, you know, I've been thinking even since you talked about or we talked about here about being devout, people can be devout without living at the church. The idea is to live your life entirely for Jesus Christ. And really, that's not reserved for pastors. That's not reserved for nuns or you know other people. Everybody who follows Jesus, really, our desire should be to live entirely for him. Yeah, uh, Anna's life there is is pretty remarkable, and what it teaches me is the need to be uh, diligent and faithful in my in my Christian walk. Okay, uh, Pete, can you read the next verse? Sure. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So the question here is, what can we learn from Anna's actions? What I learned is that God has a purpose for us, even in as we get older. I mean, here was uh, Anna way up there in years, and she was still speaking, quote, speaking about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So we can share her good news as long as God gives us the ability uh, to do so. And uh, I pull out the phrase that she talked uh, to all so we can um, be encouraged that we need to share the good news with everybody that we um, that we can and then next part says that Anna was a prophet 
And my question is, do we have prophets today? Why or why not? Well, I don't know if we have prophets in the sense of the Old Testament prophets, but in the New Testament, there's clearly a gift of the Holy Spirit called prophecy. And whether that's still here or not, I suppose, is a subject for another session. And uh, in the book of Ephesians, it says that God has given some to be prophets is one of the things. So I think that that's an office in the church. So sure, I think in the broad overall spectrum of things, there are prophets today. And we can talk about this another time, but my two cents is that we don't need prophets anymore. God has already told us everything he wanted to. Well, it's going to be time for us to sign off. I hear the music. Pete Vecchi here for Steve Wilson and Mick Wells. May God bless you. This has been Reconciling Grace. Join us again next time as our panel discusses biblical truths centered around the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ.